0: All right, so if you do have a Bible, uh, then I would encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 7. Tonight we're going to recap briefly where we left off last time. We're not going to make it far uh, in the text. We're simply, I kind of labeled it, Exodus 7 verse 14, but really today is going to be largely introductory. As we think about and introduce this rather uh, important section of the book of Exodus and, and scriptural redemptive history at large, But we're going to talk about the 10 plagues. We're going to introduce the plagues and talk about some of the the big concepts that we ought to be familiar with as we work our way uh, into this section beginning next time. But recall last week where we left off is is in chapter 7, verses 8 to 13, which we looked at this confrontation between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh as they come and appear before Pharaoh. And we signify, or we talked about these three big things. The first, the cultural significance of that scene, how it is specifically, especially designed by God to confront the Egyptian culture, uh, even the demi god. Sort of claims of Pharaoh, etc, and so that is an important aspect of that, but then we, we spent a number of uh, minutes just talking through uh, debating, enjoying the conversation of the uh, the debate of the occultic power that is here uh, displayed, whether this is merely are, are the magicians of Egypt merely charlatans or are they demonstrating actual occultic power, and we, we talked about uh, a number of, of fun subjects. Is related with that, but then the big idea that we need to have as a takeaway from that scene, which sets us up for the plagues, which we're going to hear introduced this evening, is the concept of divine supremacy. And we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but when Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh, and then of course Aaron casts down his rod and it turns into a serpent, that of course we talked about the cultural significance of that. But when the uh, Aaron's serpent swallows the, the serpents you know of the magicians rods that they cast down the whole point of that display is the concept of divine supremacy that God Yahweh God the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the God of Israel is of course the supreme being and even the act of swallowing had significance in Egyptian culture and religion very similar to uh, some of the uh, Native American cultures, the idea, and even Far East cultures, the idea of swallowing something or devouring something is actually granting not only you power over that thing, but uh, you're, you're, you're taking the essence and power of that thing into yourself. And that concept of, of the serpent of you know Aaron's rod overcoming, swallowing, devouring, and the, the concept is a power play. Is that his rod overcomes and and uh, takes over the other serpents, but even if you will absorbs their power in their in from the Egyptian cultural perspective, that's what they would have seen, which is to them a great shock, right? Because remember, the Egyptian magicians were renowned across antiquity for their uh, their power and their ability to manipulate. Substances, etc. And so this is, of course, the whole point of this confrontation is to display the divine supremacy, which sets up then, the plagues that are about to ensue. So where we're going tonight is we're, uh, again, we're not really covering new material as far as in the text. We're not necessarily looking at, uh, because verse 14 is where we would start, but that introduces then the the first plague, which we're not going to get into tonight, but we're rather going to introduce the 10 plagues, and we're going to talk through these big ideas, just so that you can start wrapping your head around the plagues and their significance. So first, we're just going to talk about the number of the plagues. Why 10? Why 10? Uh, Then the structure of the plagues. Simply, we're not going to spend long on that, but simply point out that there is a a structure to it. There's an organization to it. In other words, God is like a mighty general if you will strategically outwitting his enemy and we'll see the design and structure that goes into the plagues. We'll then of course talk about the significance of the plagues which we have already introduced and so we can kind of make quick work of that but the the significance of the plagues why God is leveling the 10 plagues in general but then lastly we'll talk about uh, a debate that is often surfaces when it comes to this subject namely uh, whether or not the plagues are providential or supernatural and we will and I think the Bible's pretty clear there's the, regarding the supernatural nature of the plagues but nonetheless when you have the onslaught of theological liberalism that you know broadsides the church late 1800s early 1900s you know we talked about that a few weeks ago and the idea of the response to that and the fundamentalist movement all of that but the idea of the supernatural was gutted from the scripture in the minds of many people and so it is obviously very controversially to this day, it's, it's often attacked and many Christians are, are caving to that. And so we'll just, we'll talk about that in order to, to cover that uh, and just speak of it so that we can, we can understand this, uh, you know, in, at the onset of our study of the 10 plagues. So well, just with that thought flow, these four big ideas, let's just contemplate these four things briefly before we, uh, you know, call it a night. But let's begin with the number of the plagues. It cannot be accidental that God used 10 plagues to teach the Egyptians that he is sovereign and that their gods were of no account. Uh, At the time of the Exodus, both the Israelites and the Egyptians used a decimal counting system, which meant that the number 10 tended to connote a full and complete or sufficient quantity of anything being explicitly enumerated, right? The idea is a 10-based system. Uh, some which, by the way, that was Egyptian, but it wasn't true of all ancient societies, right? And I'm not going to get lost in this. But if you go to the Babylonians, for instance, they actually had a six based uh, system, and that's uh, where we get you know 360 degrees in the circle and all of that. Uh, but anyways, we, there's there's different ways of of enumerating and and you know I, again I'm not going to bore you with a math lesson here tonight. But nonetheless, in Egyptian mathematicians, they they had a ten Uh, based system. And so again, that decimal list is, you know, is suggested by many why, by by many scholars, that that's why God selects the number 10 to be the plagues. So in other words, a run-through of the whole decimal list from 1 to 10 provided more than enough demonstration of God's power over Egypt for anyone to get the message, right? So that's one possibility of why there's, there's 10 plagues rather than, you know, Two or twelve, or whatever, but nonetheless, or six exactly uh, so but you know again it 's conjectural to a, to a certain to a certain degree, but it matches so much of what we see when it comes to how tailor made God uh, you know, is in, in tailor making the plagues and these encounters to the Egyptian culture and language and uh, mythology you know etc it 's incredible. But nonetheless, the, the 10 plagues are very intricately designed. There's, there's a structure that when you take not just the number 10, but you look at the 10 plagues and you start seeing how they're designed and how they're leveled upon uh, the Egyptians, there's a pretty impressive structure to the plagues. And let me talk about that for just a, a few minutes. The first nine plagues, for instance, are arranged in three groups of three plagues each, with the tenth as the final climactic plague, right? That seems to be the the pattern, the structure, and I'll point out why that is. But you have the first nine, three groups of three, and then the tenth is kind of your, your final exclamation point, which is obviously the most dramatic plague. And you'll see as we work our way through that they do increase in severity, now, the first plague in each group, all right? So in other words, three groups of three each. If you take the first plague in each grouping, that would be the first, the fourth, and the seventh plagues. Each was introduced by a warning delivered to Pharaoh early in the morning. For instance, we're, get, we're gonna get to this uh, when I get back in here in a few weeks, but look at chapter seven, verse 15. Well, let's just read 14 and 15. It says, the Lord said to Moses, uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go, get you unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's brink. Uh, against he, he comes and the rod, which is, which was turned into a serpent, shall you take into your hand? And then on he goes, but notice he will come in the morning. It says, same thing is pointed out in chapter eight, verse 20, chapter nine, verse 13. So the first, fourth and seventh plagues are all introduced by a warning given to Pharaoh early in the morning. Now the uh, oh, it crashed on me again. I don't know why it keeps doing that. But anyways, is it? Our, it might be our internet. I don't know. It's thinking. It's loading it back up. Oh, thanks. You've got it. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why it's doing that. But okay, so back to you. So the first plague in each group, go ahead and go to the next slide. So the first plague has is introduced right early in the morning, but the second plague in each group, that is number two, five, and eight, was also introduced by a warning, but it was delivered to Pharaoh at his palace. So again, you can trace this. Chapter 8, verse 1, for instance, says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go to Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. So again, he says, Go unto Pharaoh. And the idea is that he appears before Pharaoh in the palace. This is, again, you can see this in in Plague 5, recorded in chapter 9, verse 1. Let me just read that quick. He says, then the Lord said unto Moses, go in unto Pharaoh. And then same thing in chapter 10 and verse 1. This would be the eighth plague. So it says, the Lord said unto Moses, go in unto Pharaoh. So again, you see the the parallels there. So the uh, last plague in each group, that would be the third plague, the sixth plague, and the ninth plague commence without any warning whatsoever. All right, so go back to chapter 8. Look at verse 9, or uh, 16, rather. Yeah, 8 and verse 16. This is the third plague, or the, the final plague in that first group of three. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out your rod and smite the dust of the land that it may become lice throughout the land of Egypt. And on it goes. In other words, you're going to see this sort of design structure, which is, is, is pretty interesting. Uh, but where it's like you got a warning early in the morning, first thing, then you got you know, a, or the second plague, another warning this time in your palace, but the, by the last plague, it's, there's no warning. The, the last plague in that you know, group of three, there's no warning. It's rather just simply leveled upon uh, the, the land. Now, uh, go ahead and flip over, but the, uh, the initial plague in each triplet, that is uh, first plague, fourth plague, and seventh plague – has no, or has a purpose clause in which God sets forth for Moses his rationale and aim in bringing the hardships in that set. So we, as we work our way through, we'll see this. For instance, if you go to the next slide. Chapter 7, verse 17 says, "...by this you, Pharaoh, will know that I am the Lord." All right, in other words, he tells him first thing in the morning, this is going to happen. Here's the plague that's going to be leveled against you. And then he gives him a purpose clause for that plague being leveled, right? He says, that you might know that I am the Lord. Now, this is repeated in the fourth plague. That's chapter 8 and verse 10. And then again in in, uh, chapter 8 and verse 19. Now, what's interesting then is that the second set, go ahead and flip over the next slide, but the second set will say in, in chapter 8 verse 22 that you will know that I am the Lord or excuse me I the Lord am uh, in this land meaning God's overseeing providence and guidance of the world in other words the first uh, first plague was the warning the purpose clause was that Pharaoh might know that Yahweh is Lord but now he says that you might know that I the Lord am in this land Now, recall the significance of that. We're going to talk about the significance in just a second. You've already heard me uh, summarize it. And we'll, of course, look at it in much more detail as we look at one plague at a time and work our way through the, the narrative. But notice how, remember or recall with me that these ancient pantheons, the ancient polytheistic nations, viewed their gods as territorial, recall this, limited in jurisdiction. And so when it says, when Yahweh... It says, I'm going to do this plague so that you might know that I am Lord in this land. The idea is that he is more than just merely a, a deity that is sequestered to some far corner of the universe, but rather he is powerful and sovereign wherever he goes, particularly in the land of Egypt, because that's supposed to be the turf of the Egyptian deities. And so when Yahweh, you know, demonstrates that's what the meaning of that phrase is. You might know that I am Lord in this land. Did you have a hand up? Yeah. So back it up there. Mine did come back on. I don't know if that will be helpful. You might, yeah, give it back over to me, but I don't know why it keeps doing this, but that one? Yeah, perfect. i got it. You got it? Okay, all right. There we go. So, yeah, just back me up, Joe. It may crash on me again. I don't know why it's done, done that. But, and this is the different computer even. we, I even swapped computers tonight just to try and avoid that problem. But anyways, gotta love the the demons in the computers. <sighs> Where was I? Okay, so the second set, I already talked about that. Third set, chapter nine, verse 14, uh, gives us the purpose clause. It says, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. So in other words, notice the the progression. So I'm gonna go back. First set, I want you to know that I am the Lord. Second set, I want you to know that I'm the Lord in this land, referencing Egypt. All right? Third set, I want you to know that there's no one like me, right? So the idea is the uniqueness of Yahweh. But then he says, in all the earth. So it's not just the land of Egypt, but all the earth is the jurisdiction of Yahweh. So the scope and force of God's power were beyond anything known to man in all the earth. That's his point. That's, that's, in other words, do you see an escalation in the plagues? That God says, hey, I want you to know I'm Lord, Lord here in Egypt, but then Lord in all the earth, and there is none like me. And we've made that point before, but it is worthy of repeating, is the idea, God does that in a, in a number of places. In fact, I, I, in a sense, I would argue that it's the essence of the Old Testament boiled down, the Bible at large. But particularly the Old Testament is, is uh, in its interplay, Israel between the nations. The big theme is that phrase that there is none like Yahweh, right? And, and that, you know, I've used the, uh, I just always associate for sake of memory. But the, the prophet Micah, remember that? Micaiah is the phrase, that, the name Micah is actually a Hebrew phrase, Micaiah, which means, who is like Yahweh, it's a question, right? It's a rhetorical question, who is like Yahweh? And the point is, it's a, it's a claim to his uniqueness, his supremacy. And so the plagues are are designed to demonstrate that. Um, So not only do we see those purpose clauses, but notice how the plagues are arranged in an, an ascending order of severity. So the first three plagues will be blood, frogs, and biting insects. And this introduced what you might call irritations that were relatively brief in duration. That's your first three plagues, all right? So they're irritants, that are brief in duration. Uh, the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate the first two of the plagues, if you recall, and we'll work through those here in due time, but they could not duplicate the third plague, uh, and from there on, they couldn't duplicate it. And this, the, this evidence is that the quality, not just the quantity of the plagues, was becoming more intense. Does that make sense? So you see an escalation uh, you know, on the scale, if you will none of the first three plagues produced a lasting willingness on the part of uh, Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, right? We're going to see him continually be hardened in his heart, etc. Uh, but we're going to see him growing softer as the plagues get more severe. All right, does that make sense? Uh, as he, he will start caving where he'll say, well, maybe you could go to the wilderness, but just for a day or two, right? You can only take, you know, uh, a portion of your population, but leave your flocks, all of that, he starts wheeling and dealing, right? But not at first. At first, he's hardened. But then as the plagues become more severe and you know the, the damage upon the nation of Egypt becomes more intense, we see him start wheeling and dealing. But of, of course, he's still hardened and his heart, doesn't let them go until the 10th of climactic plague. But notice the second. So the first set introduces irritants, if you will, but they're short-lived and there's a little permanent damage, if you will, The second set of three plagues, that would be the flies, animal disease, and skin sores, brought disease not merely upon animals, but then also upon humans. So we see an advancement once again. That's not only uh, the, the created order or the animal world, but it's now humans themselves that are being afflicted. And so we see, again, an intensity, an increasing in the severity. And then, of course, the final set of three plagues, which is the hail, locusts, and darkness brought destruction to property and livelihoods. All right, so they're the most severe when it comes to actual destruction upon the land, and you know the hurting of the, uh, you know, actually loss of life as well as you know Egyptian economy, uh, infrastructure, etc. So there's more destruction in those final, that final set of three plagues. Again, increasing in intensity, but then the the, the tenth and final plague is the climactic one that brings death uh, to all the firstborn in the land. And uh, that, that is, of course, the, the ultimate plague we'll talk about. We've already alluded to it, not only in the death that it brings, but the significance of it. We'll talk about it more when we get there. But the attack upon the, the line of Pharaoh, the, uh, uh, the understanding in the Egyptian religion, mythology, etc. it was uh, an extreme polemic. In other words, an attack against the claims the Egyptians had, particularly Pharaoh himself. Uh, but w- w- notice, and, and I'm not going to get long into this because we've covered it in our Revelation series, but you're going to see a very similar parallel in the book of Revelation, right, with the plagues that are leveled upon planet Earth. And there's some debate regarding whether or not the, uh, you know, the, the three sets of, of seven uh, judgments each, whether it's the seals or the trumpets or the bulls, there's some debate whether those are synonymous. In other words, there some scholars argue that those are, that there's only seven plagues, but there's just, it's telling you the story three different ways and it's recapitulating the story. Um, That's a possibility. But I, I myself, and and maybe I would, I think I could argue that uh, perhaps the majority of scholars argue that they're sequential, that there's actually, you know, 21 plagues. There's three sets of seven. Uh, But, the concept is that you know, they're almost like telescoping out, if you will, where you know you have the sixth seals and then the seventh seal is broken, but that actually introduces the trumpets and you know the story. But you're going to see a very similar parallel in not only what is happening in the 10 plagues, like the water turned to blood, hail, you know, darkness, stuff like that. Those same things are going to be leveled upon planet Earth again, but on a much grander scale in the book of Revelation. But when it happens, do you, do you recall? They also increase in severity. Do you remember this? Where like a quarter of the population is impacted and then a third of the population is impacted. You, you see what I'm saying? It increases in intensity as the tribulation wears on. And so we're going to see a very similar modus operandi uh, as God judges Egypt it's like a microcosm of what he's going to do on the macro level uh, in, in the book of Revelation. And so the structure of the plagues is instructional not only to see why God is, you know, or that he, he does it here and he's going to do it again, but, but you tell me, practically speaking, why do you think, and then I'll come to you, Elena. Did you have a hand up? Okay, but just give me your feedback. <clears throat> why do you think God designs it this way? The idea of increasing severity. Like, why didn't he just nail him with the 10th plague right off the bat and let him get out of Egypt? You know, like, what's the purpose here? Do You got a thought?
1: Yeah, just giving you time to repent. I mean, that seems like the biggest theme in Revelation is kind of it's
0: good. thinking of God, kind of like what you're saying about God being in control and all powerful, but, but and they still would not repent. They still would not repent. And that's good. That's the whole point, I think. But he's giving them a chance to
1: not wipe them out the first time, It's good. Amen.
0: (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. God brings us the easiest way that we will come. Uh, And and so he must get in more intense to bring about, you know, that ultimate purpose. But good. Giving them time to repent. All right. Uh, We've got hands everywhere. Let's start on this side. Uh, Go ahead, Lisa. Good. Okay, so reason number one, allow time for repentance. Number two, to actually humble a proud, entrenched Pharaoh, if you will. Okay, Diana, then we'll come up. I was just thinking of the population in
2: general in Egypt, how the last three plagues, they were hitting the pocketbook. Maybe you just have to do something. I'm thinking of
0: America. She's going to try to hit someone, but she might begin to think about some other alternatives. That's right, increase the consequences. That's right. That's right. Okay. Excellent. Joe, what were you going to say? Well, God vindicated himself. Good.
1: The Good. Excellent. Like this, you know,
0: Excellent. Do y'all catch that? In other words, it's the flip side of uh, what Jason said. Jason said, okay, it's God's giving them time to repent absolutely. But in that same process, God is also vindicating himself. In other words, by the time he's given them, you know, 10 opportunities, if you will, then it's like God has already given them every opportunity to repent. And so finally, right, God is vindicated. It's obvious that he is just in bringing about the 10th plague. Does that make sense? All right. So excellent. Uh, Simone.
2: Like, look, why didn't
0: you catch this like 6,000 years ago? So I'm still at it, and now I'm going to prove it to That's good. Excellent. So he's, he's building his resume. All right? It, I like to say it that way, but he's building his resume. He's showing the world who he is, right? He's building a reputation for himself, which, you know, we can take that a step further and notice, uh, again, I think the, the variety, and we'll get into this, and I've already mentioned it to you, and we're actually going to talk about next in the significance of the plagues, Um, But, well, in fact, let me just say it. No, I will come back to you, Elena. I promise. Um, But the significance, recall in Exodus 12, 12 and Numbers chapter 33 and verse four, both of them state explicitly that the plagues were uh, seen, sees, that's a typo, ignore that, were seen as a series of attacks upon the Egyptian pantheon. In other words, God was methodically attacking the realm's or jurisdictions of the various Egyptian gods. Does that make sense? And so one plague wouldn't do it, right? He wanted to humiliate their whole pantheon. Does that make sense? And so he needed, you know, all of that time. So we're gonna come back to that. Elena, wow, you're so patient. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. no that's a great question so we will talk about that further but um there it, there's some uncertainty unclarity about some of the early plagues um but but it does become explicit part way through that it says explicitly that God makes a distinction or he separates you know between his people and the Egyptians so that they can recognize that which is I'm going to uh, that actually helps bring up one of the points that I want to discuss here in a few minutes. But the idea, it's, it's evidence of the supernatural nature of the plague. It's not a natural phenomenon when it's dark everywhere else, but not there. Or there's plagues, you know, disease happening here, but not over here, right? And and the concept is that God is clearly making a distinction and and uh, we'll make a bigger deal of it in chapter 33 when it's after the 10 plagues, right? But they're, they're based on Mount Sinai and then, Moses is up pleading with God on behalf of the people, and he uses that word, he uses a phrase where he says, Lord, you know, you have made us distinct from all peoples of the earth. And the idea is that yes, the plagues had the purpose of, in other words, what are we up to like five different purposes, right? So we have giving them opportunity to repent, humbling, proud uh, Pharaoh, right? Humiliating the people at large, right? The idea of the pocketbook and just humbling the nation at large. God vindicating Himself, God building His resume, if you will, uh, to to the rest of the world. But we also see uh, this idea that He is also distinguishing His people as a unique people upon the face of the earth. That Israel is a favored nation, and God's going to treat them differently. All right, that's good. Yeah. Just to build upon that, did uh, you open the canon to Revelation? I was wanting to go down that road. To man. <laughs> you're welcome. What can I say?
1: <clears throat> some people theorize, and it, and it, and it, can, and it can open a whole can of worms, but, you know, that if we're here, if God's people are here on the earth during the tribulation, that we will be protected
0: from some of those plagues. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. No, that's good. That's a good question. Because there, there is debate, obviously, whether the timing of the rapture is the big debate. But will the church be present for part of, or some of, or none of that, you know, final seven years? Exactly. But if there were, so for instance, if it's a post-tribulational rapture, right, and, and we're not getting raptured out until the very end, when we, which is essentially we go up and meet the Lord as he's coming back, um, then will we partake of, of some of these judgments? Will we suffer alongside? And well, that's a good question. The scripture is clear that we, we will not be underneath the wrath of God. But does that mean that we won't suffer alongside in some respect? Ah, that's a good question. That's a good question, because again, if we use the 10 plagues as a model, God is more than capable, as he does in several plagues, of, of making a distinction. And while he is bringing judgment upon, you know, the Egyptians, he has sequestered his people in safety. Um, but as Elena asked, and there is some uncertainty there, there's some of the plagues that don't specifically mention that, particularly some of the early plagues. And so did they experience a portion of it? That's a good question. Uh, we're, you know, we're not entirely sure. On that, but we will see. This is one more, I guess, piece. uh, I guess one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that the plagues were not only to to provide judgment and punishment upon uh, Egypt, but to a degree, they were also going to punish Israel. To a degree, some will argue. The reason for that is Ezekiel chapter twenty and twenty-two. I believe those two chapters will condemn. Israel, the generation that was in the Exodus, for actually being idol worshipers. A bunch of them were. Uh, In fact, there's several texts in the scripture that mention that, that they were idol worshipers. And so, and many of them, it's believed, right? Because it just says anyone who did not put, right, the blood over the doorpost, their firstborn son, you know, know, died. Did that include Jews? Yeah. If they didn't put the blood over the doorpost, right, then yeah, it would have included them. So in other words, there were those Assumedly, according to these other texts, that were idol-worshipping Israelis that were also going to be lumped in, you know, with the judgment. Does that make sense? So that that was going to happen to some of them. Warren. I think that uh, a lot of people time believe in a progressive punishment. <clears throat>
1: Something worse will happen the third time and so on down. Are they drawing it from this kind of story? Or um, are we supposed to put some kind of an application? In other words, watch out, Warren, because you scoot up there. The next time, maybe worse. (laughs) Sure. I hear that that a lot among Christians. Yeah.
2: to
0: this or it say that's how god worked in egypt No, that's a great question. That's a great question. So, to to respond to that, a couple of things. First, I'm going to circle back to Joe made a comment about the book of Leviticus. You know, in other words, god makes it very clear. Now, caveat, this is in his covenant with Israel, right? But nonetheless, it is argued by many that the 10 plagues, the book of Revelation, and the idea of the increasing of severity of the plagues, as well as the book of Leviticus. So the covenant promises, so you can look at Leviticus 26, uh, and then you, uh, Deuteronomy 28, where God levels out the curses that he will bring upon his people if they're disobedient. Do you remember this? The curses start small. Do you remember that? And where it's like, hey, you know, I'm gonna just cause a drought for a year. Well, then it might be a few years. Well, then it's going to be, you know, uh, disease. Well, then it's going to be military and, you know, defeat. Then it's going to be subjugation by a foreign nation. Then it's going to be exile out of your land. Does that make sense? In other words, he, he is escalating it. And he says, I'll do this. But if you don't turn back to me, then I'm going to do this. And if you don't turn back to me, then I'm going to do this. And, and he escalates it. And so it seems to be that that is part of God's definition of justice, if that makes sense. And his desire to kind of, you rephrased it. How'd you put it, Jason? That the idea is he, he will bring us to himself. The easiest way will come. Yeah. So, but, so for instance, I think it's Amos chapter four, where the prophet Amos walks through what God had already done to the nation, but they weren't listening. So he did something else and they still weren't listening. So he did something else more intense, but they still weren't listening. So then Amos, as the prophet, is saying, guys, like, wake up. Like, it's getting worse. Like, if we don't turn back, it's gonna get worse. Does that make sense? So I I think, I mean, there's a lot of biblical precedent for that as, as being in the character and nature of God, if you will, that he is slow to anger, right? He's going to start with the smallest, you know, judgment first, if you will, to try and bring us back to himself. But if it doesn't work, then he's gonna up the ante if I can put it that way. Bring out, the bigger hammer. Bring out a bigger hammer. <laughs> yes, exactly, right? If that hammer didn't get the job done, then get the next one up, right? Get the next bigger size. No, that's good, right? But does that answer your question? I think, yes, yeah. Well, I know when I'm working
3: with our kids, you'll say something to them and then they don't hear you, and then you get a <laughs> little louder, and then <clears throat> Yeah. do this or he's getting a bigger billboard or however you want to put it right. you know, God's still trying to call people to him but if you're not going to listen to the still small voice how loud do you got to get? And
0: exactly. And if you ask somebody that doesn't believe they come up with these impossible ways that God has to prove himself to them you know so, <laughs> yeah it's so true really it's so true I heard the testimony of a guy one time that he you know he got struck by lightning and then he said oh what are the chances of that, you know, because he wouldn't repent, right? He's been given the gospel multiple times. He's like, no, he got struck by lightning. So he says, no, you know, it'll never happen to me again. So he got struck again. (laughs) 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 And then he was like, okay, maybe God's real. And know, and then he becomes a Christian. It was was a great story. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. Is there a hand up? Yeah. So in church history, we have 2000 years now to look back. You can't kind of see him working with the
2: church in this way a little bit as well.
0: Sure. No, amen. Amen. In other words, the, the, a historic survey or a, a, his, a survey of the historic you know, Christian church, you can kind of see this same sort of pattern where God is, you know, and again, I mean, I think because God's God and he can work however he wants, but providentially there seems to be a pattern there where he starts small, then gets out the bigger hammer if necessary, right? And he gives the warning. In fact, he says uh, to, in, to, in the book of Hosea, And Amos, he says that he will he won't even do something unless he gives you know warning to his through his prophets first. Right? And the idea is that he's so careful to tell us what's coming, to warn, to give the flashing beacon, right? Which is again, many of these plagues, in fact, most of them, were there was a warning first. Hey, Pharaoh, this is what's gonna happen. Oh, didn't listen. Okay, this is what's gonna happen next. Right? I mean, there's warning after warning after warning after warning. And all of, what's the purpose of all it? Well, all of these reasons. Give us time to repent, to vindicate God, for God to build his resume, right? To God humble, proud people or proud leaders and, you know, distinguish his people. All of these reasons, God is so, he's slow to anger, but you can kindle his wrath, right? The scripture is very clear on that. And so he, so I think we see a very clear pattern here, right? Excellent, wow, good, good interaction. Okay, So let's talk a a little for just a few more minutes about the significance of these plagues, and let's talk about the supernatural nature before we wrap it up. Um, But again, we, we talked about this a moment ago, but Exodus 12, Numbers 33 make it explicit that God was targeting the Egyptian pantheon through this process. Now, you know this, but ancient Egypt worshiped innumerable deities, which were typically clustered around 80 major gods or deities. Yet all of these deities revolved around three main forces in egyptian life primarily the nile the land and the sun those are the three big um you know portions of creation if you will that these gods were clustered around the ancient historian herodotus for instance called egypt quote the gift of the nile end quote if it weren't for the nile egypt would have been part of a desert that stretches across north africa to the west Uh, and across the Gulf of Suez, the Arabian Desert to the east. There's a little sliver of green uh, that is the land of Egypt, and it's the gift of the Nile. In ancient times, the Nile overflowed its banks every year, depositing in that river valley the wonderful soil that had been carried down through uh, from central Africa and making Egypt one of the most fertile lands in the ancient world. Combined with the rich land and the water, the brilliant sun produced marvelous crops. Uh, Egypt was known throughout antiquity as the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. So the plagues were directed against these three primary forces and against the gods or goddesses of Egypt that were grouped around them, the Nile, the land, and the sun. Those are the primary targets uh, that that God singles out throughout the 10 plagues. The first two plagues were directed against the gods and goddesses of the Nile and everything associated with the Nile. Four plagues were directed against the gods and goddesses of the land. Then the final four plagues were directed against the sky and everything associated with the sky. We'll see that as we work our way through. But again, there's a pretty clear tracking, if you will, a targeting of what God was doing uh, in the plagues. But then the 10th and final plague, which we'll get to in due time, uh, was against the sky also because... Pharaoh was considered the earthly incarnation of the sun god Ra, the most powerful force in the sky. And his firstborn son would have been the next incarnation, according to Egyptian theology. And so, again, the the plagues were specifically designed by God for all of these reasons, right? God's building his resume. He's humiliating the the gods of Egypt, also that they might know that Yahweh, he alone, is God. But let's talk about this. I got just a couple minutes. Let's talk just briefly about the supernatural nature of the plagues. Now, you might be familiar with this, uh, and it's, been, it's, it's floating around, you know, Christian, uh, you know, Christianity at large, Christian literature in particular. But a guy by the name of uh, Flinders Petrie in 1911 was the first to suggest that the sequence of the plagues followed a natural cycle that occurred over the course of a year. He was the first to, to come up with that idea, and, he, and there's been more examples of this. More recently, in 1957, uh, Greta Hort traced this uh, connected sequence by beginning with an unusually high Nile flood in July and August and said, hey, that was uh, maybe what begins or kicks off this natural cycle. A scholar named Hoyt, a university parasitologist, follows the general line of thinking offered by Hort and others, And he offers a summation of his own conclusions as to the disease process operating through the plagues. And so the here's a a general summary of Hoyt, if that's how you say it, that he argues that the ten plagues are purely natural phenomenon. And this is how he argues it happened. He says, there was a bloom of red uh, dinoflagellates, is that how you say it, uh, who killed, uh, killed the, fle- the fish in the Nile. Dehydration then killed the frogs. The people were attacked first by swarms of mosquitoes, uh, however you say the word in front of it, uh, then by swarms of stable flies. These flies initiated an epidemic uh, of sura in the farm animals, while their bites caused an, ep- caused an epidemic of uh, esthema in the people. Next, there was a hailstorm, a swarm of locusts, and a sandstorm, and as the final plague, an epidemic of typhoid fever that killed, among many others, Pharaoh's eldest child. Right. That's how they argue the natural phenomenon argument. Um, So he concludes by saying internal evidence indicates the plague started in the summer, ended in the summer the following year, so that it takes a year, uh, and then, of course, it says they were localized in the Nile Delta or parts of it not affecting the whole of Egypt, right? And that's, that's what they argue. Now, from, again, I, I won't get lost in the the history of it. I, I, we touched upon it briefly the other night, but you really have Darwin in the mid-1800s, and then you have uh, the, the birth of, of liberal Christianity or liberalism, which then uh, basically gutted the Bible of anything supernatural. And so there, there's so much... Uh, of the scripture that they, they attack, or they try to re-explain. So they do away with prophecy, because prophecy is supernatural. Um, so they late date all the books. Or they, they do away with all the miraculous, and they try to explain it in, the, in, in one of two ways. Either the natural phenomenon way, like this, or the campfire, you know, fish story sort of way. That basically, it started like this really small thing, like the the... Uh, Exodus. This is how they explain the Exodus or the conquest. They say there was there was a slave, a few slaves that ex, that escaped Egypt, and then they they just found a, a place that was you know easy to, to settle in the land of Canaan, and then they stayed there for centuries. And as they told their children the stories around the campfire at night. Then the story grew from, well, a handful of slaves to a few hundred, to a few thousand, to a few million. And, you know, it's just like our fish stories. I caught it and it was that big, right? Well, that's, that's how they try to explain away uh, the the supernatural elements that are contained in the Scripture. Now, obviously, there was revolt against that liberal theology and you have fundamentalism and you have that whole movement. We talked about that a little bit the other night. But you tell me for just a few minutes before, because we're, we're almost out of time, but you tell me what is wrong with this theory, and just from the text itself, what evidences do we have that the plagues were actually supernatural and not, you know, simply natural phenomenon? What are you seeing, Dana? That's good. That's good. The firstborn. In other words, uh, what do they call it here? An epidemic of typhoid fever, which is highly selective when it only kills one person in every household, and it's always the firstborn, right? Just like God predicted would happen the day before, right? I mean, it's like, hmm, that's a strange natural phenomenon coincidence. Okay, so good. What else? What else are you seeing? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so the warnings, the predictions ahead of time, and then it's, it, it uh, follows. Good. Okay, excellent. What else? Yeah. <laughs> the ancientness
1: of these texts that they're finding currently they're, these, I'm always running into people that just want to blow up all kinds of things all the supernatural stuff you know. Just, we can't trust that and, you know. kind of the general idea of the fish story is just passed down well, why is it, it I get really passionate and frustrated but it's why is it we're finding stuff that even the secular people are saying is two and a half thousand years old They're digging up these texts out of the ground, maybe even 3,000 years old, and it's lining up pretty amazingly close with what we have now. So it hasn't changed in two and a half thousand years,
0: right? If I'm wrong on these dates, I'm just kind of... No, you're you're exactly right. And that's that's really their whole late date theory, is because they want to say that these texts that we have, because that's one of the big arguments, you're exactly right, to demonstrate the authenticity of the Bible... Is they want to say that the texts that we have, that we have, were written hundreds of years after the fact, when no one, no eyewitnesses of the original account are around to, you know, corroborate or contradict the story. And so basically we made up a bunch of stories and we sold it upon a, you know, dumb, unsuspecting public. Right? That's how they argue it. But then we find documentation that goes back to that first, you know particularly the New Testament, we can go right back to the eyewitnesses. I mean, we're talking, you know, within that first generation time span, we already have these documents being written. And so, and Paul, remember, Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, he's talking about the resurrection of those who saw the risen Lord. And he says, many of whom are still alive to this day, right? And his point is, go check, go ask them. There's many eyewitnesses to, you know, the reality of the risen Lord. So yeah, that's, that's a huge argument for the authenticity of the Bible is to genuinely date the text you know, and, and we have been able to in many respects.
1: You yeah, understand there's a gap <clears throat> of time, though, where it hasn't, I mean, from that, in those 2,000, 3,000 years where the story hasn't changed. I mean, they, they're just so skeptical of every little thing in the Bible, but they don't use that same skepticism and logic about any other ancient text. That's
0: exactly like, right. That's exactly you know,
1: right. super, because I, I, I watch it all the time, and they're just, you know, we've been watching some stuff with the kids on. This particular thing on, on the Exodus and all that stuff, mm-hmm. and, and he's this guy's really fair, and he plays both sides of the liberals, Christians, and the, and the conservative Christians, and they're just so want to see a natural, a natural thing, but they, you know, I, I don't know, I I, don't, I just don't know how they, if you use their logic, then you wouldn't be able to trust any ancient thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's a double standard. You're right. They test the Bible in ways that they never w- don't, you know, they don't at all in the other texts. There's an obvious double standard because there's an agenda, right, to attack the Bible, to deny the supernatural. Yes? I was
3: <clears throat> thinking that what they, what they say, what Moses says in the text, who among the gods is like you, who is majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders, he doesn't right. say,
0: That's right. That's good. He claims it. God, you are working wonders. Good. Elena? I was just thinking to <clears> take a step back to Moses would have had to been like from the future to like... To be able to predict it ahead of time? like, oh, we should go
3: this month because all this is going to happen.
0: Like, exactly. That's a lot of coincidences lining up, right? Rhonda, did you have a hand? Or no, it was you. Sorry. Go ahead, Lisa.
3: Right. The extent of the story and the amount of authors that it would take—you don't just accidentally turn a fish story
0: into that. That's good. The complexity argues for, you know, authenticity. That's good. That's good. Rhonda, and then did you have a hand up, Diana? I'll come back. Okay. Okay. Amen. All right,
2: Rhonda. So sometimes the Lord allows physical evidence to pop up. And I don't know if the source that I read was an uh, actual legit source, but they did, you know, I read they did find evidence of chariot remains in the Red Sea, but I would suggest you know, that it is a legit thing. So, you know, sometimes the word allows evidence, like somebody seeing the art.
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, and again, I mean, I, I think I shared this with you. It was about a year ago, year and a half ago. I took an archaeology class. It was really fun because it's, it's just an enormous amount of archaeological evidence. But there is, like Jason was pointing out, there's a double standard that is applied to biblical archaeology. That is, is not, you know... It's, the, it's a liberal agenda to try and hide it or attack it or late date it or whatever. But, you know, the big point my teacher was making, he's like, just look at the overwhelming amount of evidence. He's like, it's, it's impossible for them to, you know, explain away and sweep under the rug every bit, right? It just fits so well, you know, the, the biblical record, the historic narrative. And it's, it's remarkable, and it is. It's 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 encouraging because that's the whole point. Is that you know it, it's it's confirming to our faith if that if that makes sense. You got a, is that a hand? Yeah. yeah. I've noticed with the
3: culture anymore, the naturalists are discovering they can't explain everything that goes on. So <laughs> they've Started saying science or magic <clears throat> is just science we don't know, and right. so they're they're trying to redefine some of it in that way that. You know, magic is just science we don't know. So there's things that happen that we don't understand, but eventually science is going to tell us what it is. And so they're turning scientists into magicians. <laughs> In, <laughs> I mean,
0: In a sense, yeah, I see what it's you're saying.
3: Things. The science that they do looks magical, but it's, it's science. Mm-hmm. It's magical. Sure. And so it's because they don't have an answer for
2: it, and they don't know what
0: to do. Sure. No, absolutely. Yes.
2: Watched a program on, about the program about the Hebrew settlement in Egypt. Yes. And in the Delta area there. Yes. Um, they kept saying, well, the uh, excess couldn't really have happened because there's no sign that there were any Semitic people in that area. They couldn't find any. They just didn't dig deep enough. And other archaeologists have gone back and dug deeper, and I mean really deeper, and found huge settlement of Hebrew... People being there, and their the whole problem is that they won't move their timeline. That you know the Exodus didn't happen in the New Kingdom; it happened in the Middle Kingdom. Sure. And if you move that time frame over, everything
0: lines up. Right, it fits exactly because that's the big that is the big weapon of you know, a, 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 again. They call themselves biblical archaeologists, but they, the better term would be anti-biblical archaeologists <laughs> because when they're secular, they're, they're, they're trying to – they're studying the biblical era, and, but they're trying to disprove the Bible is their number one agenda. And so in so doing it, uh, they, they, their number one weapon is to late date or early date. They just try and fudge the dates yeah. because they can't deny the evidence. I mean, they can try to reinterpret the evidence for sure, but they just – then they shift the dates. And they they play that game, and it's it's yeah and notorious. Off of the
2: Ramses, and
0: it wasn't. Right. And oh they, yeah. No, I'm with you.
2: And they won't change it no matter how much proof comes up that it was not Ramses, and they say well it had to be because they they said there was a the city of Ramses there. And...
0: <laughs> yeah. They just cling to a flimsy piece of evidence. They won't let go of. <laughs> I know. I know. But they got an agenda. So yes. Yes. good. That's exactly right. So, I mean, that in itself is supernatural. And, that, I mean, why are they surprised? Oh, no, that's absolutely right. As the prophecy goes more than just a day or two before, yeah, we could back up four centuries earlier. And God gave a prophecy of that. Excellent. All right, Diane, got thought? Yes. Yes. That's right. No, that's good. That's good. No, exactly. And we will, again, we can't exhaust it tonight. We're out of time. But there's there's a lot of stuff like what Diana just said. You know, like the water turns to blood, but even the water in the pots. Right. So like that's a little bit different than an algae bloom that happened upriver, Right. So so there's that or there's, you know, as we get to Jericho. Right. I mean, it's, it's amazing. All the walls fall out. We have earthquake evidence in Israel, tons of it, where pillars, you know, the earth shifts and all the pillars fall one way. Right. That's an earthquake. But when you have a 360 degree set of walls that all fall outward, that's not an earthquake. Right. It's like that's. That's something a little different, right? And it's like, so there's, there's evidences like that of, of the supernatural and there's, and we'll see that as we work our way through, there's little, little tidbits like that, you know, throughout, but it, just keep your eye on it because this is a, it's a huge thing. And, you know, you get into the literature, uh, on Exodus, this is going to be a huge subject, you know, comes up over and over and over again. But yeah, Elena, one more question. Yeah. Yeah, amen, amen. And I forget who first said that. It's a famous quote. But the word of God is an anvil that has worn out a lot of hammers. Yeah, it's a great quote. And I forget who first said that, but it's like, but it's so true, right? There's, I mean, because the Bible has always had its critics. You look down through the centuries, the millennia, right? I mean, it's always been a subject of attack and yet here it stands, right? Like I love that old hymn, the Bible stands every test we give it for its author is divine, right? It's, oof. That'll preach, right? That's good stuff. Amen. All right. Well, you all are so patient once again. But we're out of time. So let's close in prayer. And then again, I uh, be in prayer for me. I'll be gone in a couple of weeks, but I have very able-bodied individuals that will be covering in the next couple of weeks. So, But we'll pick up this story uh, when I get back. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the time this evening. We thank you so much for... Lord, just this concept as we think through the plagues, as we attempt to introduce uh, the 10 plagues and all that you were doing, Lord, we think of why 10 and and how you structured them and and their increasing in severity and intensity and why you did that and how it reflects your character. You're a patient, loving God who is waiting uh, and giving us opportunities to repent. And nonetheless, yet nonetheless, your, your wrath is kindled and you are vindicated in your judgment. Lord, we are in awe of your your character and who you are. And Lord, that's, that's why we worship you, uh, is because you are indeed worthy of worship. And Lord, we thank you for that reality. And we pray that as we, we contemplate these things and we view these, these plagues in the next several weeks and months, as we study them and we watch what you did in Egypt of old, that you would help us to stand in awe, that you would help us to walk away with that knowledge, that the purpose that you declared while you were doing the plagues, that we might know that you are the Lord, that you are Lord in the land, that you are Lord in all the earth. There is none like you. Lord, may that be uh, the the song of our hearts as we contemplate these things, as we learn your truth. And Lord, may we, may we trust you, may we look to you and apply these realities to our day, that Lord, you are still the author of history. You are still the God who's governing all things and we can look to you and trust in you. So Lord, we pray that as we continue our study, that you would magnify yourself, encourage us and teach us all for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.